right. Good morning, everyone. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Last week we finished chapter 7. We are quickly approaching uh, the end of 1 Samuel. And my intention is to simply go from 1 Samuel right into 2 Samuel. I think that's the natural thing to do for this class. And maybe after 2 Samuel, we'll, we will reevaluate. I hope you're enjoying this as, as much as I am, this content. It's great to go through, and it's great to refresh yourself with the text. I mean, we just don't have the time to study the Bible the way we would like. And sometimes years go by before you get through a text, in some cases many years. And it is amazing to uh, go back and see that there's so much more to it than one remembers. Now, we know in terms of the major events of the narrative up until this point, Samuel has died. So we are in a time where there is, again, in terms of the narrative, simply Saul and David. And you have this back and forth between the two anointed ones, Saul, who is proven to be a false anointed one. And of course, anointed one translates to Christ or Messiah. So you have a false Messiah and a true Messiah. And of course, who's persecuting who? The false Messiah persecuting the true Messiah. And so we have a type of Christ and Antichrist in David and Saul. And that, that benefits us to have that in mind. We also see that uh, though Saul is merciless toward David, David is merciful toward Saul, and that on account of Saul's being the Lord's anointed. And so David refuses at least on two major occasions. Uh, the one in the cave where he cuts off a part of his garment, he could have taken Saul's life. And the other where Saul's asleep and all his men, Abner included, around him. And Saul steals in, or excuse me, David steals in. And he takes from Saul his spear and his water jug. And he could have, you know, run him through with the spear there. So, uh... We see the reversal themes of Saul, who is high, made low, and David, who is low, increasingly made high. But we do have this, uh, this bizarre exchange and turn in the narrative that takes place after David spares Saul the second time, and Saul weeps and wails with tears that prove once more to be false. David decides he has to flee back to the land of the Philistines. And so that was really chapter chapter 27 is David realizes Saul is not going to let up no matter what and so I am headed back to Achish uh, and and the Philistine land where at least hopefully I can eke out a, a more peaceful existence you know than constantly being pursued by Saul if I'm over in Philistine territory Saul isn't going to risk a war I'll ally myself over there kind of so, uh, you know, this is a remarkable thing because, 
David comes with his, with his small little army, 600. It didn't go well for David previously when he went into the Philistines. Um, they were ready to kill him, and he had to pretend to be mad. This time it goes better, and they actually give him um, <clears throat> excuse me, a place called Ziklag. Now we're getting to the end of 27 and uh, toward the new material. Um, the, so in this kind of border town of Ziklag, the, the problem is Achish, who's this king of the Philistines, leader of the Philistines, he thinks that David is going out on these raids against Israel. In truth, David isn't. David is deceiving him in this respect. David is going out on raids of, of neighboring enemies of Israel, uh, but not against Israel. Achish is so convinced that David is loyal to him and that David has betrayed, uh, in these attacks, has betrayed Israel, that um, he makes this rather remarkable statement at the end of chapter 27. In verse 12, Achish trusted David, thinking, quote, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant, end quote. And the, the literal Hebrew there, as the study note points out, is a slave for eternity, or a slave of eternity. So this is a, a bold statement. You can see some of the idolatry here present in, um, in Achish. And then we go on to verse, or excuse me, chapter 28, and then verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. Which is fantastically ambiguous. Fantastically ambiguous. Is he going to betray? Because we know he hasn't been fighting for the Philistines this whole time. He hasn't been fighting in their interests this whole time. Is he going to betray them? Or is he going to serve faithfully against Israel and against King Saul? Well, we know that that's probably not the case because if he's not going to raise a hand against Saul, he's not likely to fight against uh, the Lord's people. So this is a beautiful answer. Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. <laughs> and Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. So David gets a promotion here, so to speak. Um, and we are told that Achish trusts David, so there's no reason to think otherwise. Um, I, we don't need to think that this is, for, for, from Achish's part, uh, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. He has no reason to distrust David. So, verse 3, now Samuel had died. We are reminded of this recurrently. This is a theme over and over again. And Samuel, of course, really embodying the presence of the, uh, of the Lord and the Lord's word given to present tense circumstances. So the fact that Samuel isn't around leaves Saul in the dark even to some extent, David, but that's, that's lesser, and that's not a major theme in the text, but certainly that Saul is left in the dark. So, uh, verse 3 again, Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him, and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. 
And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. Okay, which if it wasn't so evil, I suppose would be funny. Because he gets rid of all of the uh, mediums and necromancers, and yet he knows there's got to be one around. So... This was probably very typical for Saul, done for show. Done so that everyone would say, here is a faithful king of Israel. So, you know, he decrees everybody out and then he doesn't actually remove them. His servants have no problem whatsoever finding the woman that he wants uh, located. And, uh, yeah, there's a medium, a spiritualist at Endor. Uh, So the Lord's, obviously, this is Saul too. I mean, this is just Saul to a T and by this we're to learn, like, the problem of not repenting and the problem of thinking you can work around God, that there's some way to escape God. There's, God's not speaking to you. You can still get the information you want. Just find a different way, a different medium, pardon the pun. But uh, yeah, obviously that proves false. That's one of the major themes in this text, that faith in this text is faithfulness to God over and against this sort of pragmatic way of thinking that is embodied in Saul of like, oh, the Lord's not giving me what I want. I'll get it. I'll do it. Pay lip service to the Lord. Try to get what you need. If he doesn't help, go get it somewhere else. It's a big problem. All right, we have the the three typical ways here illustrated. um, Dreams, Urim, and prophets. The prophets often seeing visions. Dreams possibly even encompassing visions. But those are the three sort of major ways. The Urim and Thummim, of course, are the yes-no, and that's attached to the breastplate, the ephod. So these are the ways, but the Lord didn't answer him through these ways. So, you know, Saul wants to know what to do. Off he goes to the the medium. He's got a plan in mind. Anything else to point out there? I think that's it. If anything stands out to you, don't hesitate to raise a hand and let me know. Okay. So, verse 8. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. I mean, all of this, of course, has some um, symbolism to it, some symbolic element here, but no need to, I'm sure you grasp that. And he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done. You see, he's put on these other garments, so he's disguised. She says, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? In other words, is this a sting? (laughs) Are you working for Saul? Are you going to report me? Um, You know, she's... As a medium, most of what you do is deceptive and deceiving people. 
and that that's just that profession goes on you know when you drive down the I, it's just, isn't it amazing that in the a, day and age we live you can you can drive down the street of Orange County one of the wealthiest most affluent most educated places the world has ever ever known and there's mediums and tarot card readers and have your fortune for I mean it like right next right next to like you know What's that? The rich people are the ones who go to that. That's what's so strange to me. I mean, it's right next to like really de like designer boutiques. Exactly. I, anyway. Yeah, it is very strange. So this is, I mean, this, the, but as it was, as it is today, so it was then. Most of it's deceit, and what little bit of it's not deceit. Is uh, is flat out demonic. I mean, that's if there's any power, any reality to it whatsoever, it's demonic. But as many exposés have shown, at least the modern phenomenon is this is uh, more often than not just deceit, and there are techniques you use and generalities you use in order to give people the impression that you're reading the future or knowing something intimate about them. You're really just leading them along. Um, okay. Well, be that as it may, she's practiced in deceit, and she feels like she's being deceived. And so she makes this statement and asks this rhetorical question. Verse 10, but Saul swore to her by the Lord. <laughs> I mean, this is rich. This is just, this is classic Saul. This is classic Saul, just dripping with irony all the way through. Swearing to the Lord while utterly betraying the Lord. Yeah. Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? Okay, so this is, you know, bringing up the dead, talking with the dead, necromancy. He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, so in other words, she does her little conjuring and everything. Um, this idea of bringing up, the study note points out this interesting thing. It's on, it's on verse 8, the study note, to bring up. Claiming to communicate to and for the dead, mediums would enter a trance and speak with a demon which would impersonate the dead person and speak through the medium. The medium assumed that it was, you know, again, this is like talking about when this is actually happening. The medium assumes she's talking to this dead person or, or um, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? That this dead person kind of comes in her, the spirit kind of comes in her and then speaks through her. As the study note points out, if and when this actually happens, it's it's a demon. I mean, nowhere nowhere is this ever given to us that dead people can actually do this. So if you do go to a medium and ask to talk to Grandpa, and you're talking to Grandpa, and Grandpa knows a few things about you, it's probably a demon, and he probably knows those things because he's a demon and he's been been around you. Yeah. So either you're getting deceived or worse. I thought, I thought that this was somewhere in the study note. It talks about maybe it was a different commentary I read. I don't know, or maybe you'll find it. But this idea of the conjuring practice taking place in a pit, so like like maybe a fire pit, whether or not there was fire in there, but but some kind of pit from that they're looking down and they're doing their divining in this kind of thing, uh, because. Because there's some kind of wordplay there with the pit and the abyss and hell. Yeah, being like a portal of hell almost, like the, the pit or the abyss in Revelation where you have, um, 
the, the demons coming from the abyss. Anyway, there's, uh, that, that may well be at least kind of in the background here. So, uh, verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. In other words, she started screaming, absolutely screaming. And the woman said to Saul, I mean, no doubt shrieking, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. Now, um, he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed his face to the ground and paid homage. All right, well, a lot going on here. And we can, no, let's wait. Let's wait on that. So um, she, this is fascinating. This is absolutely fascinating because she says she sees a God. Um, At this point, oh, I guess I'm just going to have to do this. So, so the real, the real issue, the what, I mean, for 2,000, well, more than 2,000 years, um, at least in the history of the church and the church's reading of this text, the particularly Christian reading of this text, it's been hotly contested whether or not uh, this is actually uh, Samuel or whether this is a demon pretending to be Samuel. Okay. Um, yes, did you have a comment? No. Okay. Yeah, okay, fair enough. So, um, so, so those are, and, and people debate this. People debate this. Is this actually Samuel or, you know, did God, did God allow him, allow Samuel himself to show up? There's a certain, there's a certain just, um, what would be the best argument for the fact that this is actually Samuel? Just the naked way in which the text presents it. You know, it doesn't, the text doesn't say straight out, this was a demon masquerading as Samuel. It just, it just gives very basic indications like, um, Let's see here. An old man is coming up. He's wrapped in a robe. He knew it was Samuel, but that's not. When the, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where it is. That's where it is. If you just look at verse 12. Bring Samuel up for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. It's just that kind of naked presentation. You know, that would, that would probably be the best argument for why it's Samuel. Um, I think the majority of the, of the church fathers, the majority reading of this is that, you, that that's, that's there simply because she's deceived and this is an evil spirit conjuring up Samuel. So at no time should we actually think this is Samuel. It's just an evil spirit. So that's probably the majority reading. Um, now, with, with those things in mind, um, Yeah, with those things in mind, let's just move forward into what comes. Okay, so verse 14, what is his appearance? Uh, an old man is coming up. Oh, yeah, he, she first describes him as a god, which that's profoundly intriguing. And by the way, doesn't really help you determine if it's a demon or Samuel, because this is, this is apt description of either angelic beings or of deceased saints. You can find... You can find that language used in the scripture for both, a small g, God, okay? So, uh, 
and then, and then what does she see next? She sees him as an old man and wrapped in a robe. And apparently simply that description, um, probably having to do with uh, his, his attire in, in terms of his being a prophet. Let me see if the study note gives us anything more specific on that. Saul could not see what the woman saw, depended on her description. Um, it's a vague description, but more than sufficient for Saul. And this is mention of the prophetic robe, the tearing of which had become the symbol of Saul's downfall. Okay, so she gives this description. It's sufficient for uh, Saul to believe that this is Samuel. Then verse 15, then Samuel said to Saul, again, just look at the way the text presents it. Surface level, just, hey, it's Samuel. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Again, just look at the plain way the text puts it. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, if you remember, that's where everything started really manifestly going downhill for Saul. That's why it's brought up here. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. So you remember with Amalek, he was supposed to destroy it. He didn't destroy, he, he didn't destroy them utterly. He just destroyed all the worthless stuff. And then he kept all the stuff. And then there was this thing of like, oh, well, we're going to all offer this to Yahweh. It's like, yeah, right. Okay, so this was a, I mean, this was a major deal. And the foundation of Saul's you know, pragmatism and deceitfulness, his cynicism. Okay, and then, um, yeah, moreover, the Lord will give Israel. So, I'm sorry, I might have lost, uh, let's see, because, verse 18, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Okay, so what is, what is this Samuel character, whether it's actually Samuel or whether it's a demon posing to be Samuel, what's he actually said? I told you that this is exactly what, what was going to happen, and now it's happening. Um, if you look at, uh, I guess it actually, the footnote begins over on, um, the footnote begins 20, it's the footnote 28, 15, 19. So it begins on the preceding page. I sure don't see any other breaks. Anyway, take a look at that uh, footnote on 28, 15 through 19. The medium apparently fled. So at some point in this discussion, the, the medium bolts out of there. Okay. Yeah, it gets scared. Um, we'll see that come up in verse 21, which we haven't got to. She comes back. The spirit spoke directly to Saul without her, 
bringing a message that was almost identical to Samuel's last words to Saul back in chapter 15. Samuel had given Saul the plain truth. Here the future is also foretold in precise detail, which has led some interpreters to conclude that the spirit was truly Samuel's spirit. Okay, so look at the, just go back and check out the details. Um, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me, that is, you'll be dead. Um, the Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. So there's some specificity there, okay? And so that, again, has led some commentators to conclude that the Spirit was truly Samuel's Spirit. Study note continues. However, though Satan is the father of lies, he and his minions are perfectly capable of speaking the truth and can even mouth God's word. You remember that in the temptation of Christ. He quotes scripture at Jesus. Saul's sins are denounced as the reason for God's anger and rejection. Missing is the prophet's usual appeal for change of attitude, perhaps because it was too late. Nothing would avert Saul's doom and that of his sons and many of his soldiers. The long-standing issue with this text is whether the spirit was truly Samuel's spirit or the work of an evil spirit which the Lord compelled to speak the truth. Hippolytus, uh, an early church father of some standing, says Saul did not actually see but only on being told by the woman that the figure of the one of those who ascended was the figure he desired and taking it to be Samuel, he consulted it as such and did it uh, obeisance. And it, could, uh, and it could be no difficult matter for the demon to conjure up the form of Samuel. Okay, so there's, that's probably, it's probably not just Hippolytus, that's probably representative of the majority view of early church fathers. And then um, Luther we may easily see that the bringing up of Samuel from the dead was trickery and deceit. The whole event is against this commandment of God. Accordingly, we may not assume that the real prophet Samuel was brought from the dead by the medium. But when the scriptures are silent and do not tell us whether this was the real Samuel or not, it demands from all of us that we should well know that through Moses, God has forbidden necromancy, and he never recants what he has said, as Job says in Balaam in Numbers 24. How should the sorcerers have power over the saints who rest securely in the hands of God? All right, thus far Luther. Um, and then one more quote from Luther. Evil spirits have produced many wicked tricks by appearing as the souls of the departed. And with unspeakable lies and tricks demanded masses, vigils, pilgrimages, and other alms. Okay. So, um, Yeah, I won't go into any further than that. It'll take us too far afield. So, okay, so there, I think that you have a pretty representative reading of this text, that by and large, particularly in the Western Lutheran tradition, take this to be an evil spirit uh, masquerading as Samuel. Um, he has nothing but doom and gloom to preach to uh, Saul, and indeed a prophetic 
um, even though somewhat general, um, Saul gets his answer. It's not the answer he's looking for, but he gets his answer. All right, uh, any thoughts, any questions? Move on. Okay, verse 20. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul. So that language is what leads the, the study Bible to assert that she left, and now she came back. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a, a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. Okay. Yeah, the study notes here, I mean, they only point out just the uh, sort of the, the anti-Last Supper motif here of this Antichrist. This, in effect, is his, is his Last Supper, his last meal. He's treated as a king. He's got these earthly comforts for yet a few more hours. Um, the whole thing is reminded, it reminds us that it's shrouded in the darkness of the night. Uh, in fact, the study notes suggest that this whole experience goes throughout the entire night. Okay, so there's one thread in this, uh, in this event of the Philistines going up after uh, Israel. Now we've got to get to the other thread, thread because our friend David is, uh, <laughs> finds himself on the army that's now opposing God's army. That's chapter 29. Before we do anything on Saul and the witch of Endor. All right. Chapter 29, verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in uh, Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines, you remember the lords of the Philistines, this is the, this is the five cities, so the kings of the five um, Philistine city-states, of which Achish is one. I think he's connected with Gath, if I remember. So th these are the lords of the Philistines. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, 
They knew he had been anointed to be, or excuse me, no, I think that that's referent to Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now four days and uh, for days and years, and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. So, the commanders of uh, the Philistines balk at David's presence and the presence of his army. Obviously, they're fearful that he's going to betray them. And Achish goes to bat for him and says, I know exactly who this guy is. He's deserted to me. It's been years he's been serving me. Verse 4, But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down um, with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord, that is, uh, to Saul? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David, of whom they sing to one another in dances, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? So this is a pretty good case (laughs) for not having David there. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, which is deeply ironic because, of course, he hasn't been. As the Lord lives, it's also interesting, like double irony, because Achish says, as the Lord lives. He's taking upon his lips, I mean, this Philistine is taking upon his lips uh, David's God. As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you, so go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord and king? Who knows why David is protesting? Is he protesting because he wanted to turn on them? Is he protesting because um, uh, just to feign? You know what I mean? If he's a little too eager to go home, that would be suspect. So who knows what David's doing here? But um, anyway, this is how he answers. Verse 9. And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Isn't that outrageous? Just, I mean, this conversation's just deeply ironic. Let me see if the study note has anything to say there. Yeah, blessing and success resulted from David's presence in their midst. The same phrase is used of David again in 2 Samuel 14 in reference to his skill as a judge of right and wrong. Interesting. Well, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning when the servants of your Lord who come with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with them, his men, uh, set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. All right, so David is not, uh, not part of the battle. Chapter 30. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag, so they come back home from the battlefront, 
on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both great, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. All right, well, like much of this, self-explanatory. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. And of course, as I mentioned a moment ago, the ephod has the Urim and Thummim attached to it. That's the point. So uh, that connected with the final thought, the preceding paragraph, that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord. You notice the yes-no question, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Basor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of a cake of, a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Carathites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God. Uh, again, unusual language here. Um, that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master. And I will take you down to this band. Okay. Verse 16, and when he had taken him down, 
Behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. All right, so obviously beautiful moment in the narrative, and in terms of the narrative itself, just superficially dramatic because this is David's first great test as a leader, and uh, by, he turns to God, hooray, God gives him good news, he executes the good news, this rescue is performed. Um, what, what we see here, though, more deeply is a, uh, is a redemption story. So as we've been talking about David as the, the prefigure of Christ, um, and, and we know that it's going to be David's son and David's Lord who is the true Messiah. And so what we see David doing here is a redemption. I mean, David's whole world, as it were, has been captured. And so we see David turn to the Lord and then go out and recapture, redeem uh, the whole people. And so this, of course, is typological of, of what Jesus does. Um, we all have all, in fact, this entire world, this entire creation, captured by Satan. And just as uh, David rode off and fought and won them back, so our Lord Jesus came down from heaven to earth and has won the entire earth back and is dragging us back joyfully to the new heavens and the new earth. Um, you can picture David very beautifully driving the livestock before him and our good shepherd uh, driving the sheep of his church uh, before him. So we want to have those themes in mind because all of the scriptures are ultimately about Christ and here quite obvious and evident in this story. All right, but there's a little bit of drama that comes up and that we see on verse 21. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Basar. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. Ooh, so there was some bitterness on the part of those who were not exhausted and went on. They felt like, hey, we did the work. We risked our lives. You all sat here. Uh, you can take your wives and children. That makes you even. But then, of course, because you weren't willing to fight with us, you can get out of here. So these men, I mean, they are described as wicked and worthless. I think their principle here, at least, is a relatively just principle. I mean, we'll make you whole, what you, you know, we'll make you whole, and then we'll dismiss you. Okay, so uh, take that for what it's worth. 
How does David respond? Verse 23. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. There's the key. So David is thinking in terms of God's grace. And David is thinking in terms of God's supernatural gift um, of, of granting them back all of their wives and children and flocks and animals. Plus, by the way, they're further enriched by the Philistines because the Philistines' bounty was there too. And David's sitting here saying, are you kidding me? We, not only did we get everything back whole, but we got enriched. Now is not the time to be, you know, meritorious in our thinking. Did you merit and earn you 200 who were left by Basar? Did you merit and earn the spoils? You know, look, David's saying, in effect, we didn't merit or earn it either. God gave it to us by grace and more. And so uh, we're not going to go through with this just plan. Right. You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And this is quite, this is quite reminiscent to me of the story of, um, that Jesus tells, the parable of the laborers going to the field at the different hours of the day, and at, at the end, they all get the same denarius. Of course, you know, just that's God's grace and that's, that's his gift. And um, those that come at the last, obviously, they don't work very much for that denarius. So the ones at the beginning, they balk and they say, that's not fair. And of course, Ju Jesus uses this parable to teach the deeper truth that the, you know, some who are first will be last. They end up departing in their bitterness. And some who are last will be first. Those that don't work receive the full payment. And so, you know, an example of grace. The principle is really the same here as what David does. David says, look, the, the share of him who goes down to the battle, of him who works all day, is going to be the same as the share of him who sits by the baggage, of him who only comes in at the 11th hour. It's the same principle. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. So David shows himself to be super abundant in terms of grace. I think this flows from his spiritual realization that this was the Lord's doing. And that flows into an abundance of grace and a way of governing so that people aren't going to be divided and cut off simply for justice sake. There's going to be uh, justice and what's right, but there's going to be mercy and grace um, flowing throughout this. So here David shows himself to be exemplary. You know, they would have lost a third of their force. If David would have went along with this, they would have been cut down by a third. And what do we gain from the text of those who, who were left? Were they left because they were afraid? They were left because they were exhausted. So David gets that. He says, fine. You know, they didn't, they didn't stay there out of cowardice or, um, you know, mutiny or anything of the sort. They were just too tired to go on. So David's merciful to them. I mean, here he shows himself to be a shepherd too, doesn't he? It's like if you had sheep in the flock that couldn't keep up, you don't say, okay, you're up for the barbecue, you know. Okay, verse 26. When David came to Ziklag... 
He sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. I mean, they're so super abundantly enriched by the, the Amalekites had taken so much from the Philistines. David has enough to give to his 600 men, and there's this overflow, and so he gives it back to Judah, which is not only gracious, but really, really strategically wise. He's keeping his connections there, isn't he? So here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negeb, in Jadar, in Aroer, I don't know how to pronounce that, Rower, Aroer, in Sifmoth, in S, oh my gosh, Esto, yeah, S, I don't even know, Eshtemoa. There it is, Eshtemoa. In recall, in the cities of the Jeremelites, in the cities of the Canaanites, in Hormah, in Borashan, in Athak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. I mean, so this is a beautiful thing. This is a beautiful thing. I, David, is, David is thinking of the future, and he's remembering that these are the Lord's people, and he's remembering that he's anointed to be their king. And so he's been roaming around all these areas. I mean, he's done them no harm, but they obviously know him. And when a bounty comes to him, he says, guess what? A bounty comes to all of us. Now, that's just really, really beautiful and wise uh, leadership on the part of David. And, I mean, very much Christ-like kind of uh, mentality. All right. Well, we've got, enough, we've got enough time to jump into the next Gosh, we might even finish it. Let's see. Brace yourselves. Warp speed. Now, the, chapter 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan. Ah, oh, brace your heart and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. Now, Jonathan's the one that stands out in our mind because for full-on chapters, Jonathan was the hero. And of course, Jonathan, so faithful to the Lord, so faithful to David as the Lord's anointed. Uh, the beautiful friendship and deeper than friendship they had because united in covenant before the Lord in terms of the future of Israel and the future of the kingdom. I mean, it really transcends friendship in the deepest sense. It's, it's like a, it's true, I don't know how to explain it. It's probably a type of what true Christian brotherhood is supposed to be like. It's probably what it's a type. Um, what we'll ultimately experience when all of our the sinful natures in us are dead and we can all be true brothers and sisters in the absolute fullest sense in heaven. You know, this is a foretaste and picture of that, what, what, uh, Saul, what David and Jonathan had. So anyway, this is very sad that Jonathan goes down. Verse 3, the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. Um, so this is, this is actually a suicidal move. In some respects, it might even be more cowardly than suicidal because he probably has the means to figure out how to do it himself, and he doesn't. I mean, this is a pathetic and sad demise. 
his, but his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. So this is, um, yeah, the fact that the armor bearer won't, good move, because this is the Lord's anointed, and you don't want to raise your hand against the Lord's anointed. And even if you did and survived, well, you'll see what would happen. We'll, we'll get there. All right. So, when his, yeah, so, okay, Saul falls on his own sword and actually then does the deed. It's like more cowardly than suicide. You do it, and then fine, I'll do it. He falls upon his sword and dies. Yeah, when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead. Okay, sorry, I skipped ahead. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. Verse 5. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Um, why, and why, of course, does Saul do this? I mean, in one sense, okay, he's self-serving. But it's because people, I, I mean, at that time, it's, you can still even kind of see this in the, in the Middle East and in certain parts of the world. You do not want to be captured by your enemy because they'll, they'll torture you, they'll mock you, they'll kill you in the cruelest, cruelest possible way. Verse 6, thus Saul died and his three sons. I mean, that's his whole line and his armor bearer, so he's utterly cut off. And this, this parallels then, um, crying out loud, I need to eat lunch. My brain is drawing a blank. Who is the, uh, Eli, Eli. This parallels uh, the, the end of the line of Eli, the, the, like the priesthood has to be reset, the end of the line of Saul, the kingship has to be reset, and that's probably, as much as anything, the dramatic theological climax is there has to be, we are, we are looking for the perfect priest and the perfect king. That's who we're looking for. And, of course, that's pointing us toward our, our Lord and Savior. Okay, um, so this is the end of the line of Saul. Verse 7, And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. So again, you get the scale for just the hugeness and the vastness of these wars and battles. And I mean, much more massive than I think we're used to depicting in our minds, thanks to, thanks to Hollywood. We have like this narrow little battle scene, you know, and you're out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, this is in the midst of these cities that are spread out. It's just this huge, like, chaotic thing. All right, well, the Philistines grab a chunk of Israel then. Verse 8, the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols ah, and to their people. So this is seen as not only a military victory, but a spiritual victory. The Philistines just beat Yahweh. And there's the great shame, ultimately, of Saul and of his spiritual failures. Is it, uh, in the eyes of the Philistines, it harms, the, it harms them spiritually. 
they think that they've bested Yahweh. Verse 10, they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. So they purify the bones by fire. They bury them. This is a super depressing end, isn't it? Okay. Um, We will get more details and more details in terms of what happened. uh, and, And then we'll get David's reaction to the death of Saul and Jonathan as we go into 2 Samuel next week. The Lord be with you.